Hey everyone, welcome back to The Negotiation, and in this episode, the tables are turned because Joseph Cook, co-founder and president of WPIC Marketing Technologies, takes on the role of host and puts me, your regular host, Todd Embley, on the hot seat. I talk about launching and growing China Accelerator, Asia's first and most successful tech accelerator, what the startup landscape looked like in China from 2009 and 2016, why WeChat was the greatest tool that could have been invented to help startups scale quickly, the massive difference in how a China-focused startup spends a Series A versus those in the West, and why the best investment we ever made was into a cryptocurrency play. Welcome to this week's edition of The Negotiation. Today, we bring a special episode of The Negotiation, whereby I, Joseph Cook, partner and founder of WPIC Marketing Technologies, turn the table on our regular host, Todd Embley, to learn a little bit about more about his history inside China. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Todd Embley, great to have you. Great to turn the tables on you this week. Yeah, it's nice to be on my own show. So, Todd, you moved to China in 2007. You took on a very in-depth, important, and pivotal role in the investment and accelerator community inside China when you moved there. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with SOSV VC firm, and what was SOSV firm doing inside China to begin with? I was an entrepreneur when I got to China. It was, you know, I arrived in 2007 uh, and then came back in 2008. And as we know, 2008 was a very tumultuous uh, time uh, for the global economy in general. And so it was actually tough to try to figure out where I could go. Nobody was hiring. Uh, things were, you know, all hiring was frozen. And the landscape was pretty, pretty bleak. So, you know, constraints breed innovation. So I had to jump into trying to create my own stuff. And I ended up doing that. And, and along the way, I met uh, another guy who worked for TBWA, one of the world's largest digital ad agencies. He was in Dalian uh, representing a Japanese graphics firm called eGraphics. And uh, he and I became friends. And one day he told me that he was going to leave TBWA, join SOSV and start an accelerator. And to be honest, at that time, I couldn't even spell accelerator. I had no idea what he was talking about. So he you know, briefly explained what an accelerator was. You know, we invest early stage, give some money, take some equity, and then we drive them through a program. And it was a very interesting model. And one of the reasons that we thought this would be great for China as far as an investment model, and I say we, you know, obviously I joined and stayed with them for a long time after that, but I did help him build it in the very beginning as well. We were a bunch of, let's just say we were a bunch of Laowai, a bunch of white guys who could barely speak Chinese looking to do early stage investing in China. And how were we going to find good startups and, and how were we going to entice them to come and allow us to participate in investing in them? 
the accelerator was a really great kind of beacon where we didn't have to go and search, which would have been difficult for us in China as foreigners. So this way it attracted startups to come to us. So you and I met in 2011 when we started to build our relationship, but we met in Shanghai and rarely do I hear a start story in China starting in Dalian, also not known as the startup capital, nor the nucleus of China. So tell me a little bit about Dalian as where you started the accelerator and how that transitioned down to Shanghai years sure, later. Sure. Sean O'Sullivan, of which the you know, the, the, the fund is named after SOSV is Sean O'Sullivan, uh, not SOS for other reasons, as people usually think, uh, he had come to China and he was, he had, he had invested in a ride sharing company in Ireland, which is where he was situated. He, uh, was looking to build out a dev team and I guess he chose Dalian. Dalian was popular at the time for a lot of your outsourcing in your dev. There was um, the proximity to Japan, Korea, and obviously being in China, there was a lot of language proficiency. There was a lot of young talent. There's, you know, quite a few universities, but it's also a beautiful place to live. It's kind of the, the Hainan of the North. And so the, it was the, the rate of attrition for a lot of companies. So you would see like SAP, Accenture, Fidelity, Goodyear, all these companies were, were, were building uh, plants and, and call centers and things all around Dalian. So the IT parts started to spring up. So Sean had come over to China and, and was looking to build out a dev team for this, this kind of ride sharing app in, in Ireland. And he was going to put it in Dalian. That's how he met my buddy Cyril Eberswiler. They met because Sean was touring the IT park. They got to talking. They con concocted the plan for the accelerator. And then that's when Cyril kind of brought it to me and said, hey, listen, this is what I want to do, but I'm going to need your help. Can you come and join me and help me build this thing out? Um, and I said, okay, great. And of course, Cyril was there, again, for the same reason of, of bringing e-graphics from Japan over to China and choosing Dalian for the same reasons. So given the fact that we were already based in Dalian and we were going to trial out this this accelerator program it was easier to just do it where we already had some feet on the ground had some network knew some people and so it, it kind of started there but um down the road dalian we kind of outgrew dalian as far as what we were doing and it it was just not that big of a startup hub it was more difficult to find mentors uh it was definitely more difficult to find investors and so we we ended up having to move we looked at several different places i think at the time when we were doing mostly software because we had already launched a hardware accelerator in shenzhen called hacks which had blown up as well and was was doing amazingly well so really on the software side we had two options we had shanghai and we had beijing and you know at the time uh you know not only was shanghai's pollution kind of half of of what beijing might have been but it was a lot more metropolitan and that's kind of leads into a discussion of the different types of startups that we were looking to invest in really kind of what this model was whether it was going to be cross-border or not we were we, you know we had been going through a bit of an identity crisis um, as well trying to figure out what the best model was but at the end of the day we found that shanghai was a more comfortable environment for startups with a little more ease of getting around the city a little 
cheaper to live. Um, and I think things were just a little bit more open down in Shanghai with regards to entrepreneurship because Beijing, of course, is, is PRC capital and things were just seemingly a little bit more restricted. I wouldn't say that uh, it was any worse or any better. I think Beijing has an amazing tech hub. They have an amazing startup scene. They have really, really developed. And I, and I think just all of China, you could, you almost couldn't have gone wrong, really. I mean, it, it just started going crazy all over Chongqing and, and, and Guangzhou, uh, you know, anywhere uh, would have been a good choice. But at the time, you know, and I, and I, and I will say that there was some personal influence for me. I, I thought I wanted to get into a bit of a warmer climate. So I moved down to Shanghai. So Sean O'Sullivan, he's known for picking some major winners. And I can see how having his name on the masthead of the accelerator in Shanghai is going to court a number of applicants. The China accelerator had been known for, you know, being a challenging accelerator to get approved into. You guys had thousands and thousands of applicants. You were right at the core of that onboarding process. How did you vet entrepreneurs? How did you vet startups? How did you deal with the mass inbound demand to get involved? Yeah, I think, you know, we we developed this thing we called POP, okay? We were looking at the people, we were looking at the opportunity, and we were looking at the path to success. And it was a combination of all three. I think, you know, in the beginning when, when you have, like you said, thousands of applicants, you have to kind of take on some sort of decision-making uh, by rote model of just quickly being able to sift it down to to a manageable number and a lot of that was you know incomplete applications you know almost like what a university would do it just you know we would ask for some specific things and if you didn't take the time to read the details of what the application required that was just enough for us to kind of move you off to the side of the desk uh, right away. Then we would look into the people because in in startup land, the human beings are still the greatest risk to any startup, bar none. Uh, there's really no controlling any macroeconomic events. There's really no like brand new technologies that anybody is truly developing. Those come along every decade. Um, so really, you're just borrowing other technology. It was really, we just noticed, especially at an early stage, uh, the ins and outs of the humans uh, for all their faults and, and wonders uh, were the biggest issue. Then we needed to look at the opportunity. So what they were trying to develop, um, a lot of startups underestimate or don't understand VC economics. So when we're going to invest, what we need to look for based on how we've raised our money, who we've raised it from, the, the you know, and just the, the process that we know all of this money when it goes out and when it comes back and how much we need to get back in order to satisfy, you know, whether it was uh, efficient and worth it for us to bother investing in the first place a lot of startups don't really understand that so the things that they're working on typically just aren't scalable enough they're not going to be big enough uh so we really need to see the opportunity it also you know just needed to be something that was um interesting uh, that was going to be cool that other investors were going to be interested in because we couldn't be out on an island being the only ones that were interested to invest in something um we need a lot of other people to be able to come into it uh and it had needed to have a lot of customers and so you start to move into the path and the path is what's the competition landscape look like um what is the technology uh, feasibility what is the scalable scalability of it um how many customers are where are the customers uh how much money do they like spend all that other kind of stuff and just to really analyze um do we have the right people building the right solution to a big enough problem that people are willing to pay money for and at the end of the day i think you just kind of 
shove it through that equation and the best ones that come out those are the ones that we start started just sending out deals and, and offers to we would we would probably get it down to about 25 and send out and start we would send out offers to the first 10 see how many you know came back how much negotiation we had to do then the accepted and, and we would just kind of slowly move through there but uh it was it was a long and laborious process for sure so you have this incredibly unique perspective in that you've worked with and mentored endless numbers of entrepreneurs and startups and businesses. So, you know, looking back in the rearview mirror and as you see it today, what's your take on the Chinese entrepreneurial and startup scene? Uh, it's it was pretty amazing. So I mean, to be in China from let's just say 2008 to 2016 was was just incredible. I mean, it it what an insane ride um, to be watching the development of of smartphone technology and then how it permeated throughout China, how it absolutely changed the entire landscape of when you can put something in people's hands in the middle of nowhere and they can buy anything from anywhere in China, anywhere around the world and have it delivered to them. Um, it was just amazing. Their, their, their access to information, their access to news, their access to products, everything changed. Uh, the WeChats come up and Baidu starts going, you know, um, ballistic. And now you've got, you know, maps and ride hailing and, and like the taxi hailing and all this. Like it was just, it was absolutely incredible. Um, entrepreneurship was interesting in china there's definitely a difference between north american entrepreneurs and chinese entrepreneurs um and that's all i would say it's just different um you know we we struggled as i mentioned with identity of what china accelerator was going to be because we thought hey why don't we help global entrepreneurs come into china and that proved extremely difficult the cultural differences were probably too great for even us and, and our handholding to really try to help them to be able to do on their own. Um, so we kind of flipped and went back, okay, well, why don't we help Chinese startups go global? And the one thing that we were really realizing at the time was that for us to try to help Chinese startups do China was probably not in our best interest or our core competency and that we would quickly be overtaken by new entrants that were coming in like innovation works you know kaifu lee raised like a billion and a half renminbi to, to start running his accelerator right after we launched ours and we knew that they were much better suited to be able to do that so we started helping them well why don't we do the highway out of china and that was not as successful as we hoped for either and this is where we really started to see the difference um, between Chinese and North American or Western. Um, I think to put it simply, uh, the Chinese seemed a lot better at the deep science. Um, they were very, very good technically, but um, doing a startup means a couple of things. One, you really need to be okay with failure. And I think the Chinese were still trying to get used to being able to throw a product out there and have people criticize it and be okay with that and understand that that's just good data on which to build the next iteration. And then the second thing was their ability to understand how to build business. You know, they, we, we got a lot of MBA types that would come from the West who really kind of understood business, but they didn't quite understand um, how technology was built and deployed because that was more of a Chinese specialty. China has grown up. They've um, 
become a more iterative, like acceptable as as a, as a culture of, of entrepreneurs. They are now um, perfectly willing to try and fail, uh, which has been absolutely amazing to to their growth. Uh, and it's just so competitive. Like that's that's the one thing that the Chinese have is that this deep seated. It's the wild wild east, right? So. It is um, dog eat dog out there. Dog eat dog. Their competitiveness, their hunger, their work ethic is is just incredible. What we need them to do is talk to more customers, <laughs> and that was you know the the different thing that was was trying to put it out there. But then as platforms came along, like WeChat, WeChat was to me one of the single best things that could possibly come out for any entrepreneur it was this amazing platform that you could build in you know these html light apps or do even like mini programs now you can put out content you can measure the response you can put up a paywall you can see who actually pays to do kind of like the proof of currency on whether they're finding value in what you're building or not whether the problem exists or not with you know whether they would pay for a solution to the problem this is all you were trying to verify in the very beginning and WeChat was the ultimate tool for entrepreneurs to be able to do that and just kind of do all this proof of stake, proof of concept, um, you know, proof of desire around what they were building. And then to be able to quickly dialogue and learn much, much more uh, and deeper about the, the wants, needs, desires of, of their potential customer base. So that was that was just really, really amazing. Tencent in of itself produced WeChat through this, the innovator's dilemma, right? Like when you have a product that is working and people are paying for it, do you want to invest in creating something that could potentially cannibalize the first one? Uh, Tencent had no problem with that. Absolutely no problem with that. They at one point had over 350 different uh, siloed product departments that were building independent products, had their own quote unquote kind of CEO and, and somebody in charge of the marketing budget that was devoted to that product. And, you know, back in the day, Tencent made all their money from QQ, um, you know, from the, from the messenger and yet was still investing in products like WeChat siloed off in their own little kind of development area. Um, and of course, now we know that WeChat is uh, by far and away their flagship product and it completely cannibalized QQ, but to the benefit of everybody. And so big kudos to, to Tencent for, for having that kind of um, ability to ignore the innovator's dilemma and still invest in just about anything they thought was cool. And what a timeline to be involved in the startup scene, the entrepreneurial investment scene, the series A scene uh, over that timeline, and especially in, in the disciplines of, of digital and IT development. When we look at it, you know, from a bird's eye view in 2007, when you first started to get involved in the market, digital in China was virtually nothing and non-existent, right? Um, and then to look at where it's come now, to put it into perspective, it wasn't until mid-2007 that the iPhone was released. So China was hit with digital and mobility at the exact same time. Yeah. WeChat came on the scene in 2011, and by 2018, it was the world's largest standalone app. Yeah. Um, so I imagine the influence on the community that you were involved in in mentoring and guiding uh, was 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 pretty substantial. Oh, it was, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, you just look at, there's one of the greatest stories of the impact of WeChat that nobody really knows about. And it's actually the Facebook acquisition of WhatsApp. And at the time, this is like one of those few and rare instances where, where the bankers were actually smarter than the, uh, than the entrepreneurs. So Facebook is looking at acquiring WhatsApp and WhatsApp is trying to figure out what their valuation should be. Of course, like these guys are like a 99 cent app on the app store. 
Tesla, right? So however many users they have times that by 99 cents, this is your valuation kind of thing. Um, and so, or like per user valuation uh, model. And what WhatsApp did and very smartly was they actually pointed at, at WeChat and said, that's our valuation. That's where we should be. That's what we can be. That's where we're going. That's what our valuation is going to be. And of course, at the time, um, the WeChat per user valuation was between 23 and $25 per user. So if everybody, for those who remember, when Facebook acquired WhatsApp for $19 billion, nobody in this planet, on the planet, understood how in the heck WhatsApp got that kind of evaluation. But what most people don't know is that WhatsApp was pointing at WeChat and going, that's our valuation. Look at our user base, times it by that number. This is how much money we want. And that's how they got $19 billion was because of WeChat. So looking at valuations inside China, it's been widely criticized as being an overvalued market, especially in the startup scene. A lot of entrepreneurs, you know, are all chasing that billion dollar, billion US dollar buyout. Yeah. What did you see inside that community as you're working with young entrepreneurs, you're trying to mentor them through getting their concepts up and off the ground? How grounded were they in looking at their long-term exit strategies? Uh, they weren't that grounded, um, to be honest. Um it was something that was difficult for us that we had to deal with even as a fund. Um, you know, China at the time, you know, don't really have their own SEC. Um, so they, you know, and, and I mean, things would have come, everything would have come out in the wash in the end, especially if you, you know, have some sort of liquidity event, you have your IPO, you have your acquisition, something like that. It's inevitably going to come out. But what they were doing, and this, this was kind of a bad habit that started and was and, and continued to propagate, was they were inflating um, in news how much money they were raising or what their numbers were. And I think it was driven because of just the competitive nature. And it, it's not it wasn't just the competition for talent. I think it was the competition to be able to stay being an entrepreneur. China's kind of family culture at the time, like you said, like it came out of nowhere and it exploded, right? You know, the iPhone didn't even come out until mid 2007 and we didn't have their China didn't have a lot of huge known entrepreneurial success stories. And it still wasn't appreciated by a lot of parents that their kids were looking at becoming entrepreneurs or even for, you know, full time. So I, I think a lot of it, you know, when you came out and said that you raised $6 million and, you know, you were accidentally like the, the, the biggest trick that, that it was, was being accidentally quoted in USD instead of renminbi. That was like the easiest way to kind of fudge your numbers. Um, sometimes as high as a 10x multiple on what you actually raised, but it got you press and that press got you a lot of kind of cachet in the market to be able to hire. And a lot of people would come and want to hire you so you could get your hands on the best talent and you were able to keep your, your talent because the talent you had would of course report back to mom and dad and grandma and grandpa that, you know, the company they worked for was this rocket ship and raised all this money and was doing all these things. And, you know, you were just kind of basically doing whatever you needed to do in the wild, about these to to get there and on the topic of talent todd 
you know, I know it's a very competitive environment, recruiting tech professionals, digital professionals inside China can be a real challenging thing, especially in these hubs like Shanghai, mm-hmm. where, um, you know, there's great demand that uh, supersedes the supply of talent inside that market. Yeah. How are the members of your accelerators? How are you mentoring, um, you know, these people and, you know, building talent, building teams? What was the makeup of those teams? Okay, so that's that's a big question, and I there's several ways that I could unpack that. I think um, on the talent side of things, when you look at tech talent in China, I had a friend of mine put it in a very interesting way, and he said, you know, Tsinghua University, uh, Peking University in Beijing, puts out the greatest number of the highest quality of of computer programmers developers um of tech talent in the world even more so um than than mit and they are all um top tier best in class have the most and best ability at being able to use technology that is developed at mit and the point of his quip uh was to point out that there was an a layer of creative innovation that was missing was this this trial and error this this playfulness of when you're just messing around with technology and stumble upon something cool there wasn't enough freedom i think back in the day for tech talent that as as individuals as humans as sons and daughters of chinese parents and of grandparents uh, just in that way they didn't have enough kind of flexibility and and just playing around and messing around with with stuff and trying to create new there wasn't enough room left in their lives i think to do that for a long time they they kind of underdeveloped that skill in that part of the brain um and just you know that and having that kind of time to to do that so i think that's where it came from so i would say when the when our chinese talents would come in i would try to encourage them to to be curious to be playful break some shit you know like really really try to get out there and and explore and push the push the boundaries and and you know it's better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission so just go out there and, and try to do that um one of the other kind of talent issues was around coachability and that was probably one of the the biggest hurdles for us as a program that was mentorship driven where we relied heavily on our mentors and the contribution and the impact they would have on the startups was to have them not be so defensive i think when a, when a mentor would come in and challenge them because we always ask them to be highly socratic you're not here to tell them what to do you're ask them to you're there to ask them to explain why they did whatever they've done and to really have good reasons what we're looking for is is kind of building the decision making or the 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 building architecturing kind of process of building tech and understanding customers and deciding on pricing and all these other things it was the philosophy and the process around how that worked because we knew that we only had them for three and a half months and then we had to release them into the wild and they needed to be able to take really really good skills that they could replicate and reuse um later on so 
that was kind of, but when we would get in and we would start asking, they would say, this is what we're doing and all this kind of stuff. And they would say, okay, well, why this? Or why did you do that or whatever? Um, they would get um, defensive. Um, and then when we would say, okay, well, here's an example and here's what Airbnb did or here's what Pinterest is doing or something like that, whatever. Um, they were getting overly defensive. And what we could see is that the, the wheels were turning on how they would defend what they were doing because that's what they were used to doing instead of going, oh, that's interesting. So when I say this, you think that um, or when I present this financial model your questions were around that okay so I didn't explain that better or I need to work on that they they weren't thinking forward they were kind of thinking back and so this was some you know some of the way that we needed to kind of help understand them help them understand how they were going to move forward and develop their product more efficiently don't fight with the market listen to the market and just adapt and then how did this mentality translate over to the use of proceeds? Well, the use of proceeds, again, was very different, but that wasn't really that wasn't because of the entrepreneurs. That was because of China. And that is just a competitive landscape nature. So what I'm talking about, uh, to put it simply, is that if if you raise a Series A in Silicon Valley, you're going to spend half of that on engineering. You're going to spend another 25 percent on sales and marketing, probably another you know, 20% on design, something, you know, you know, you're going to hire some people, you're going to build something else, but you kind of, you, you, you kind of spread it out and you level up in different areas, not always equally, but you definitely spread it out in China series, a 85, 90% goes to customer acquisition. You, you had to, you just had to bull rush the market. Um, and that's just how competitive it is. Um, because, you know, we, we've heard of this kind of the, the copying, um, type of, of thing in, in China. Um, and it's, 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 it's kind of true. There is a lot of copycats, but it's the wild, wild east. And so what? Deal with it. Like, if you weren't strong enough, fast enough, better able to win, it wasn't always best design wins. You, you didn't, you didn't just get, you know, you weren't entitled to win because you came up with it first. That's a very elementary school type of thinking. The one that wins is the one that wins. That's it. So get your stuff together, get out there, get moving, get hustling and go like there's no time. People are going to come up behind you and think that they are better than you, stronger, they're faster, more well connected and are better able to build something. They're going to like what you did. They go, huh, you know, that seems cool. I might do that, too, because I think I can beat those guys. And so it was really all about execution. So when you when you raise that first amount of money. You wanted to be first to market, but not just first to market. You wanted to be everywhere. It was a race to see who could get their foothold first because that was the most important thing. The other reason was that you didn't want to be eliminated by one of the big guys. I mean, if you are going, if you are developing slowly on a platform like WeChat, well, you're kind of beholden to what Tencent allows you to do. And if Tencent maybe thinks they like what you're doing and they think it might be valuable, they've got a couple options. They can offer you a 10 cents on the dollar, you know, buyout, or they could just put a thousand engineers that they have of their own disposal onto what you're doing and just cut you out of the platform. And there's no going screaming to mommy or going to the courts or anything. There's no kind of rule of common law that's going to help you in this situation. Again, dog eat dog, you know, wild, wild east. And, uh, you know, nobody's going to waste their, their time listening to somebody cry about what they did. I mean, it's, it's a fact. Your job is to get as many customers as you can, get off of the platform, 
get everybody converted and, and jumping over to the native app that you built and be a force to be reckoned with as fast as possible so that nobody can take you down and take you out. And now they've got to deal with you kind of face to face. Right. And although aggressive as you're outlining, what better place to acquire customers than the land with the most amount of customers yes. being China? Yes. Yes. So All you connected guys, to their phones. So you guys had some pretty sweet successes. You know, one that comes to mind is BitMEX. Tell yeah. us a little bit about, you know, BitMEX, how they went through the accelerator and uh, and how they then propelled themselves into startup. Yeah, I mean, Bit- BitMEX was, um, again, when we talked about that pop, you know, the the, the people, the opportunity, the path, um, that's where, I mean, it just really, really came together well. BitMEX was a couple of guys that met uh, in Hong Kong. You know, you had this um, really smart, aggressive uh, American MBA type who had who had worked at uh, you know Lehman's and 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 Charles Schwab and things and and was really deep in the finance who also was super curious and was getting into Bitcoin matched up with this brilliant British tech guy who had been building financial tech products for you know 15 years also lived in Hong Kong and they were both based in Asia and Asia is really where Bitcoin took off, especially in China. So another kind of perfect storm that happened for them was, you know, I think it was like 75% of the world's Bitcoin at one point, let's just say like 2015 was, was based and held well, in China by the Chinese, um, where it was actually, you know, digitally stored. That's another story. But this was where we saw, the you know and then the the opportunity and the path was there are new it wasn't just about bitcoin it was ethereum and litecoin and ripple and all these other you know digital assets started coming out that people were actually starting so now what were you going to do like where were you going to be able to go there was no you know and basically what they realized and then ended up building was they built the e-trade for 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 cryptocurrency which which was was brilliant and it was this was not something you were going to be building in new york or san francisco um just regulations out the yin yang right you had to be in a place like the wild wild east to be able to launch and get something like this going and be able to move as fast as you need to move without a lot of regulatory headaches and so we had the right guys who had the right backgrounds and the right curiosity um and just kind of this right the right attitude in the right place of the world hitting on the right opportunity at the right time and the path was i mean you know lucky for them there was competition was nascent right it's it was it was a truly new technology and they were kind of first in and saw what was needed and yeah it just it just worked out brilliantly when they came into china accelerator they were doing like 45k a month and i mean i honestly wouldn't be surprised if they were doing like 45 mil a month do you guys still hold a position in them we're the only ones that hold a position in them. They, <laughs> the luxury of their financial model was that they just made tons and tons and tons and tons of money. So, you know, they're like Nintendo. They just, they're just so cash rich. It's not even funny. And so we're really the only position holder since that time. They've never needed to, to raise money outside of what we've put into them. Great. Good for you guys. So as we close this out, Todd, 
you know, it's been a privilege to, you know, collaborate with you over the years, work with you in China, work with you in North America globally on a number of different initiatives. You know, I've always sat back and, and watched, you know, this really unique perspective that you have, this involvement, this very large network that you've been able to build over your years uh, working out in China um, and now inside North America. You know, help us understand, you know, what's something that you know about China that nobody else knows? I would say the one thing that I know that nobody else, or at least not a lot of people do, is just how hungry the Chinese are and how eager they are to level up and how difficult it is for them. Ergo, just how competitive the landscape is there. It is 1.4 billion people and opportunities do not come along that often. So when they get their chance to really, really make their mark, they're going to go for it. It is ultra ultra competitive there is no award for second place you're either first or you were last and so keep that in mind whether it's an employee or a business partner is that it is a race it is the most competitive place that you've ever experienced in trying to do business todd it's always a pleasure i love listening to your stories and learning more every time i talk with you thank you so much for turning the tables this week and educating our listeners on your story in China. This has been fun, Joseph. Thank you. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.